Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. <laughs> Big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make EdTech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. Good evening and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. It is Saturday night, it is 8pm and we have our very own TTR Double Act talking all about life at a PRU. So without further ado, Yasmin is here. Thank you, Tom, and thank you in advance to everyone that's going to listen to the show called Life in a Pru. Um, oh, has it cut off? Oops. Um, yeah, so thank you to everyone in advance that will be attending the show. This is a rescheduled um, show. I suffer from migraines and unfortunately wasn't able to do my show yesterday. And as a result of that, um, Bafja and I have slightly changed how we're going to do our show on top the pro topic now what is great about this really is Bahja and I both were formerly mainstream teachers who now work in alternative provision and between us we actually have a lot of stories and we know a lot of different experiences that people have had and are able to compare the two really well um, I just want to start off with saying that I actually think a lot of teachers would really really enjoy working in alternative provision I know that the first thing people usually say when I say that you know, I'm, I work with excluded children is all, oh, you know, behaviour must be really poor. But actually, it's not the experience that I've had. And I think that, I mean, my work life balance has been better. Um, the room and d- degree I'm able to kind of manage behaviour has really improved. You know, um, I'm given a lot more freedom. It's actually, I feel, has been a lot better for me than mainstream has. Um, and, you know, Bahja, I mean, feel free to jump in at any point. And also, welcome to your first show as a co-host with me. Um, Thank you. But, but, you know, I know that you wanted to kind of talk about some scenarios and, you know, kind of questions that we're going to put out to anybody who wants to listen, but we'll also answer ourselves. So, you know, fire away. I think you had a few questions. Now, I think... Um... Working alternative provision, people are a bit like even now when they say, "How is that your new school? Is it really that crazy?" And actually, I took my sister with me during half term um, to pick up some stuff from school, 
and she just loved the building and she was like, I can't believe this is where you work because she sort of expected, I don't know if you get that, but like a prison. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and I was just like, no, this is, it's really nice and bright, this airy, uh, there's so much thought being put into how um, the students are able to move around. Obviously my uh, alternative provision is more of an SEMH school less of a pro and children only with ehcps um, are in our school um but my first question is is why did you consider working in alternative provision what made you decide you know honestly it's a great question um and i think i would say what made me want to work in alternative provision kind of goes back to why i went into teaching in the first place um you know when i was growing up in ealing i grew up around a lot of people that had quite a difficult time in school and i remember joining ealing council working with them across so many schools i mean i was like avoiding teaching people would constantly tell me oh you'd make a great teacher and i'd be like oh no go away like i don't want to be a teacher that's boring etc um and ended up working with so many excluded children that i ended up going into teaching because of them and what what is funny to me looking back is I always knew what kind of teacher I wanted to be or what I was interested in. I know what often happens with teachers, you know, having worked with so many, being most of my friends are teachers as well. Um, I know that most people join a school and they're not really sure if they want to do like curriculum or pastoral and, you know, they're open minded and, you know, they're kind of willing to see what happens and what roles come up, etc. Like, but with me, I always knew I was a pastoral person. I always knew that I wanted to do something in safeguarding or behavior. Like I just knew that from my first day. And um, yeah, so what happened to me in mainstream um, was I was just that teacher in the science faculty that always like whenever kids were being re-roomed like misbehaving in other lessons I was very good friends with everyone in our faculty and you know I would of course there was a school behavior policy in place and you know people used to use that but also I knew that if a teacher was really struggling with a pupil we would just kind of have they'd either text me or we'd just have our own conversation where you know they'd say can I send so and so to you today you know until they've had their restorative and things like that and I'd say sure. And, you know, I gained a reputation as somebody who managed behavior really, really well. And, you know, the more um, I did it, the more my confidence grew and the more my interest in it grew. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't really planning to go to AP as early as I did. But essentially, I think and I think this is common for a lot of people in teaching. And I would say, probably more so ethnic minorities and more so women as well um, but I applied for pastoral roles and I would never be successful in the application process and I eventually got to a point where I also felt like the feedback I was getting wasn't actually helping me develop you know when the kind of feedback you get is you know we can't fault you we can't fault you and so like I didn't really know what I could do different and yeah you're about to say something there Bacha. I was just gonna say like there's no no actual reason <laughs> apart from the fact that they already had um who they wanted in pl- in place yeah I mean, there, there was all sorts you know that's that is one kind of thing i miss about working in mainstream you know to, just to go off topic a bit one of the things i do miss is working with so many people because one thing about a large staff body is you know conspiracy theories and gossip like you know there were all kinds of theories that fly around you know i remember there were people who'd be like to me Yasmin, what if it's because of your past? You know, you've had a tribunal, which, by the way, I never felt was the case. Or, you know, other people be like, oh, it's because you're a union rep. Union reps are never promoted, etc. You know, it just never ended. 
and um anyway you know conspiracies aside I was never successful and so I started to kind of open my mind to the thought of actually looking elsewhere and I was always aware of you know the program that I'm now part of um called the difference I was always kind of aware of it because I used to constantly google news on exclusions and stuff like that so um long story short ended up applying to that and yeah was successful in a role and you know what's so crazy to me looking back I will never forget in, in the same week, by the way, that I actually got accepted in an SLT interview and got given a role, I was also rejected from an internal middle leadership interim position. And I remember even, you know, telling the head teacher, like, you know, it makes no sense for me to be rejected from an interim middle leadership pastoral role, but also succeed in like a multiple round SLT interview in my first go kind of thing. And, you know, for me, it just kind of sealed the deal. I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go through with it. And essentially, that's how I ended up in AP but how about you, Badger? Because I know that you were a pretty successful, um, you know, head of year in a tough school in London. So, you know, what made you switch? Um, I think I got interested in working. Actually, I wanted to work in a proof first over a SEMH school just because my first visit to a proof was when my first year being a head of year. One of my students had left the proof. To come back to mainstream and I was meeting I was having meeting once a week with his pre mentor and then at one point when he wasn't doing as well as he should have he was busy jumping gates and leaving school and then coming back halfway through the day um, we had a meeting at his at the pre and just looking at it, it was nothing that I thought pre would look like and I was like I'm kind of interested to work with um, students or in environments like this. Can I just stop you there, yeah. I just want to ask, what did you think a pre would look like? And honestly, if anyone in the audience wants to jump in, feel free to as well. But I just want to know, because there are so many stereotypes about pre's, um, and I just want to know, what did you expect a pre to look like? Um, prison. <laughs> I mean, that's a simple, like a school version <laughs> of a prison. I shouldn't be laughing. But... <laughs> Do you but know, what? like... Like a rundown building, um, graffiti, holes in a wall, um, a mess basically. Because, and then also even the metal detector didn't even look like a metal detector. <laughs> it just, and I, I just imagine like a big body, like a kind of like security guards kind of people. It just, that's what I expected. But, but why did you expect that? I'm so curious to know. And, you know, like, Bahadur, you wouldn't be alone. Like, honestly, I think most teachers, uh, as I said earlier, most of my friends are teachers. And I know that when I told people I was going into a pre, you know, people's face dropped. They were like, oh, what about your medical condition? What about this? What about that? You know, as if I'd come to harm. But why is it that you thought that? Where? What was it based on? If you'd never been to a pre before, why did you have, like where did your views come from do you know what it, it's more it comes from like when i was in secondary school there was the pre of my borough um where it was it just looked a bit old and then you just think of the worst kids of each schools in a borough get set there and that's what they kept and they just also the, the kids that went there looked scary so that just put two and two together plus prison that's what i thought if if this is the air, the school where which has where every single child has been kicked out from the schools in the borough are all there together, um, that's why I just assumed. 
You know what? Fair enough. But ha- also, have you ever been to a prison? Because I have, and I'm going to tell the story, but I just want to know if you've been to one before. Oh, no. No, never. I drove past one, but not so one. I've been to prison, and I want to clarify that I wasn't like, I didn't go as an inmate. I went to, basically, I used <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> just, to, just, just to be clear with it. But um, basically, when I used to work in Ealing with excluded children, I eventually, sometimes some of them would end up and I know you know people call it the exclusion to prison pipeline I know it's considered very controversial I know that um you know a lot of people argue well if you're misbehaving at school and you end up excluded then it might not necessarily be a surprise that you might also you know break the law in public and you know end up in prison etc like I know it's considered very controversial but I mean I did know kids who yes they were on the periphery of exclusion in school you know they might have that they, you know, disrupted some lessons or there were certain subjects that they had a particularly bad record in whilst they were finding others, whatever. And there were also other kids who, you know, had like a one-off serious incident which got them excluded when they were previously totally fine. Um, But anyway, a lot of the time, a lot of these children wouldn't go to their crews, you know, especially when they were excluded for one-off incidents. Like, say, I knew, I remember one boy who, um, his targets were all G9s, and um, he was in year 10, and he got into a, a quite a vicious fight, actually. Um, you know, I, I did feel like I, I saw the CCTV of the fight, and, you know, he, he'd beaten up a pupil that was younger than him outside of school toilets in the middle of, like, the school day, uh, and it was like an unprovoked attack. They didn't even know each other, and they just kind of exchanged words and um, he ended up beating him up to the point where you can see this boy's uh, this you know younger year eight boy's nose bleeding on the CCTV and so you know I I went to his exclusion meeting and I remember feeling like well actually you know this is quite extreme violence and you know the safety of the entire school community is important but anyway when he was excluded um, he was meant to go to Peru but you know, as you would know, Bahja, I, I don't know if everyone knows, but in, in Prus, a lot of your GCSE options are really limited. Um, if you previously did, you know, 12 subjects or you were preparing for, you know, 10 GCSEs or the EBAC, etc., you're very unlikely to be doing that. I, I think, actually not I think, I know that the pass rate for GCSE English and Maths in Pru is just 4% in the entire country. Only 4% of children in Pru's pass English and Maths at GCSE. You know, there are barely any teachers um, and many of the teachers are not qualified teachers. They don't have QTS. It's just a really, really difficult environment. So anyway, this boy didn't want to go to school because he just didn't really feel like he fitted in there. He really missed mainstream, etc. regretted what he did. Um, and like, Anyway, it was kids like that who, instead of go to school, would then end up a lot of the time spending a lot of their day outdoors, especially when they had parents that work or parents who kind of weren't really aware. Just there, there was a lot that happened. But anyway, um, sometimes kids would end up going to prison and, you know, they would still be really young, 16, 17, sometimes even I think one of them was 14. I went to go visit them. So I used to go visit. And honestly, prisons are quite scary play I mean I just remember feeling like um even just as a visitor I felt like it was like a youth detention center I went to two different ones I went to one called Woodhill in um it was somewhere like near Milton Keynes and I went to one that's very well known in London called Feltham um in West London which basically was full of Somali kids I think 10% of their prison were Somali boys from West London anyway um I just remember feeling like I wasn't really treated with any dignity that like when you first come in 
you have to hand over anything like with metal your phone keys etc which I didn't really mind like I was happy to follow all their procedures and stuff but it was just really scary considering I wasn't even an inmate or anything you know and not to say that they deserve to be treated without dignity but I, I just remember the whole thing was scary and also if you are a I mean I, I don't know exactly what the policy on it was but if I mean, I was, I think, 21 when I was doing these prison visits. I, I was really young. Um, there's there's like a risk of like rape or sexual assault. So you're not really allowed to be anywhere on your own. Um, and one thing I remember, which actually is the only thing in Prue that reminds me of prison, is um, every single door. Like So this like prison warden that was showing me around or like taking, escorting me, she had like loads and loads of keys like hanging off her hip. And I don't know how she knew all the different keys, but she would basically unlock each door and then you'd go through a door. Like you're just like in a corridor. There's like a door every few meters. Um, and then she'd lock it behind her and then you'd walk to the next door and she'd open it. And I just remember thinking, bloody hell, like if you tried to get out of this prison, you know, like you're basically you're not going to get far, maybe four meters at best. Um, but weirdly enough, that's the only thing in Prue that reminds me of prison because now all our doors are fobbed. Um, every single door is fobbed so um, you know if kids want to go anywhere even the toilet they have to ask you to either unlock a door or fob the door you know um, they just they can't get anywhere they can't go anywhere without a member of staff and you know a lot of the time when we do student voice you know the kids say you know I feel like I'm in prison I feel like I'm in prison I want to be I mean whenever a kid asks me to take them I always take them but also I feel like sometimes it causes quite poor behavior the fact that they feel trapped so um, if I just give you guys like a quick story recently and by recent I literally mean the week before last I actually had to go to a &E. I had to take a day off school and go to a &E because um, there was a group of kids that wanted to talk to me I was taking them on a trampolining trip and they wanted their phones so we like collect their phones in in the morning they w wanted to ask me can we please be allowed to use our phones which sometimes they are allowed to bring their phones on trips and stuff um, especially if you know if if it's a rewards trip and you know to, they're allowed to bring their phones so that they can get pictures of themselves and stuff like that um anyway they wanted to ask me yasmin please can we get our phones um but recently there'd been poor behavior and there was like a whole staff um agreement that phones wouldn't be allowed so i basically you know to i fobbed them out of the hall we were in like the canteen I took them into the corridor closed the door behind me and I basically spoke to them there was a group of four of them and I said guys um you know behavior has deteriorated at school I'm not going to let anyone bring their phones on this trip you're going trampolining you know look on the bright side you don't need phones you can talk to each other and you can talk to me etc you know and I kind of ushered them back in so I was like back into the hall back into the canteen and um I, I said get in quickly so I could shut the door because I know as soon as some of the kids on the inside see that one of the doors is open they're gonna run for it um and there was this one girl that took really long because she was like pleading for me to give her her phone and i wasn't going to and i was saying you know quick quick get back in i need to shut the door i need to shut the door but she took so long that a boy ended up like and he was like new he ended up running like sprinting across this hall and like kicking the door with his full force and i had like my back to the door and my arm was like outstretched and i was trying to shut it um whilst talking to her so like i was facing away from the door and my hand behind me so I didn't hear him I didn't see him run up to the door but anyway long story short like everyone that was there heard my wrist like crack and yeah it was so swollen I mean I still went trampolining but I had to go A&E and I ended up having like a scaphoid bone injury and I've got like a splint and I have to go back next week for like another x-ray but 
that is what I would say is the only thing in Peru that reminds me of prison, to answer your question, Bahja. That's interesting. Do you know, like, the slight difference between um, my school, SEMH, is that the children, so in the classes, you'd have, there's a fob, like, in, the, in your Peru, there's a fob for each corridor. Um, there's a fob for each classroom. However, if they're in a class, they can leave the class um, from the inside. So you can open the door from the inside. They can go and they can go to the toilet or they can take some time inside the corridor. Um, so that that's the only slight difference. But how has your mindset of Proust changed since working there? Or did you always see them in more in a more positive way than other people you know I feel like um I definitely always saw them in a more positive way because I went into Peru's before I even became a mainstream teacher so I always knew that you know kids in Peru's like I always felt like they were children that were really misunderstood I always knew that about them they were a group of kids that I always really cared about um and even in mainstream I feel like I was really drawn to the kind of kids that would have to go to things like isolation and you know internal exclusion rooms and stuff like that so um I feel like I always kind of understood them but even still when I joined the Peru even despite the knowledge that I had I realized that I still had so many maybe stereotypes prejudices about excluded children even whilst knowing so much about excluded children if that makes sense which is why I never like really feel any type of way when you know teachers kind of have these views about children like I I, I get it, if that makes sense, because even whilst having worked with them, I still was quite surprised by some of the things that I saw. My experience genuinely has been that excluded children in Prus know essentially that they're predominantly out of chances in mainstream school. And I find that it actually makes them a lot nicer and a lot more cooperative because a lot of them come to the Pru and they look back and they regret what they did you know I have a lot of kids who look back at how they treated teachers in the past or you know mistakes they'd made in mainstream or just behaviors that they you know knew that they shouldn't have done and you know when they join the Peru a lot of the time I feel like they're children who have really really low self-confidence and self-esteem you know they want to feel a sense of belonging they want you to care about them and to like them and they actually just want a new chance like a renewed chance to just get things right and you know my experience with the kids has genuinely been really good like I genuinely have had more difficult classes in mainstream um, you know I, I know that in mainstream I was often relied on in the science faculty to have I always every class I taught was like an extremely difficult class I remember once just for a double lesson it wasn't even I was teaching a double lesson and I needed to be covered for the first 30 minutes um and one of my colleagues in science just covered me because there was no like cover teacher in the school that was available and um I remember afterwards she spoke about it for the rest of the week she kept saying husband your class you know they, they were horrible like I wouldn't want to be the permanent teacher of that class and like I just always had classes that were really really challenging and I always felt like I had to put in so much work to curb behavior and you know there were so many things that really get you know kind of dragged on Twitter like slant for example that I actually I felt like I had to use because then you know that was how I was able to 
her behavior from the door like I had to I had to get them at the door otherwise you know it would be a, a really difficult uphill battle and like all of my classes were like that um but it was just really like um I've just I've just lost my trail of thought what was your question again Bahja? um it was you've answered it actually it was about did your mindset of proof yeah, change no, yeah so yeah what I was gonna say was um those classes I taught in mainstream I would say actually many of them were far harder the challenges are very different it, um out of the two so like for example I don't now have any kids who are like oh miss I want to be a doctor or you know miss I want to go to Oxford miss I want to do this I want to do that I don't really have that um so there's like a whole chunk of you know, a typical type of child that I taught in mainstream in every class that I no longer have at all. But, you know, these children, although their aspirations are different, I've actually found that a lot of the behaviour is far better. And I would actually say a lot of the teachers who just kind of feel eroded, um, you know, in mainstream at the moment would probably really, really, really like alternative provision. I tell all my teacher friends that I think it's something that people should all try. And I, I kind of think that, you know, it'd be really nice if more teacher training courses actually offered the opportunity to go to an AP for some part of your training or to, you know, how like teachers as well used to be able to go on sabbaticals and stuff. I think it'd be really nice for a teacher to be able to do like a one year or a one term contract in AP. I think a lot of teachers would really like it. But yeah, a very long winded way of answering your question, Bahja. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. <laughs> big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make edtech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. No, but also to jump um, of having difficult classes, it just reminded me of one day I left, I think I left for an interview actually, and my head of science um, had to cover my year 11 class. Now, this is last academic year. My key stage four classes was bottom set year nine, bottom set year 10, and second to last set year 11. And uh, she only had to cover my year 11 period six. And obviously, um, year 11s hate politics, uh, they hate staying behind anyways. And um, I came back a bit early just because I was I was the head of year and I also wanted to see what nonsense happened. Um, and she she begged me if I could come back at, at, 
as I was at school, if I could just sit with my uh, politics class so she could go because she could not stay another second with them. And I was just like, you're the head of science. You've made this class. You've given me this class. You can surely you can deal with them. They're not that difficult. But it, it goes to show that I feel sometimes with behavior, there are certain, I will say there's certain ways of seeing children um, in a different way. And I think you and I both seen the holistic side of dealing with children rather than just focusing on, yep, that's a badly behaved child. The question is, well, why, why are they behaving that way? What is it that I can do to ensure that they can behave in a better way and eventually start learning? Now, what is like one, there was this one story that you actually shared um, on your Instagram that really made me laugh. And we spoke about it earlier um, about a child in a Christmas tree. Do you want to <laughs> tell us about that? I don't know if I should even say this, but you know, since you've asked, I'll tell it anyway. So um, we had a Christmas tree put up the other day. Um, I can't lie. I feel like behavior this year is significantly worse. And I feel like every teacher I've spoken to has said this compared to a year ago. I, I don't know. There's something about behavior right now that I feel like is more challenging than it was last year. Anyway, we had a Christmas tree up and the other day, like, so my crew is really good in that um, we send a lot of our pupils back to mainstream. They do really well. You know, I, I would credit the head teacher and all the staff, but you know, we, I know some people say rehabilitate and all of these kind of words, but essentially the children are able to kind of correct poor behaviours that they demonstrated beforehand. They're able to show consistently, you know, that they're able to focus and work in all of their lessons across all subjects. Like there's no pupil in our school that we recommend for uh, what's called the fair access panel, which happens every month where all the head teachers meet um, and, you know, discuss both the children that will be excluded from mainstream as well as the children from our school that we hope to send back. Um, we don't put anyone forward for what um, the fair access panel. So we, we just call it FAP. We don't put anyone forward for FAP unless they've genuinely shown that even if there's one area where they're, you know, not or have any kind of questionable behaviours, we don't recommend them for FAP. So like you have to be really good to go to FAP. There was this boy that was going to be going back to FAP. I mean, he went to FAP um, and successfully got accepted into mainstream. Um, he knew it was his last day the other day. And um, he just decided, like, I, I could hear him kind of shouting in the corridor. So I just thought, you know what, I have a really good relationship with him. I thought, you know what, it's his last day. Maybe he's got, you know, last day nerves or first day nerves rather. I don't know. I just thought I'd go out. I was actually teaching a lesson. I just thought, let me just quickly step outside and offer for him to come in and, you know, kind of join our class. Um, anyway, long story short, he next thing I remember he'd gone for this Christmas tree and decided to try use it as a weapon to try hit a member of staff because he knew that he was leaving um and this you know Christmas tree and all the baubles and everything was just strewn across the floor like just scattered across the whole corridor and I just remember thinking like you know what happens now you know this is this is this child's last day tomorrow they're going back to mainstream you know, was it a mistake? Is it the right decision? You know, how does that member of staff feel? What was their motivation? Didn't get to ask anything or kind of find anything out. It was just really, really bizarre. And, you know, the one thing I will say about Prue is I have come across behavior incidents that I've never seen anywhere else, like genuinely have never seen anywhere else. Um, and, you know, it, it's in many ways just kind of unforgettable really. No, I just want to say the reason why I found it 
funny, which is obviously it's it's a serious incident, but at the same time is the fact that for every single thing um, in a alternative religious school, there's a massive risk assessment. And even at my school, we've put up the Christmas tree and even we were like, we were surprised that Christmas tree, this Christmas tree lasted a week um, because we were just like, it's very brave of us to put a Christmas tree with one starlight. <laughs> This is um, terrible. Because... That's terrible. That is honestly terrible. The Christmas tree should last. Our one lasted last year. The, the same tree. Sorry to cut you off, Badger. The same tree right. a year ago lasted from December until January. Like nothing happened to that tree. It was so random. And, you know, that boy had even commented on how nice that tree was the day before. So, like, it was just, I don't know. The Christmas tree didn't deserve that. Maybe he felt like a bit of a Grinch. Um, but it also goes to show that sometimes they are, they're very unpredictable. And even currently, I'm a form tutor from after being, after not having a form class for like five years. And I've only got five boys in my form. And I've made this display. And this is the only display um, that I've said I'm going to put up. Because the nickname of my classroom is that it is the trap house or the bando because of how a bear it looks. Because um, a lot of my boys, when they are dysregulated, they like to pull things down. And they've all made a promise um, that they will not pull this display down because every single class had to have it. It's about um, a positive end to our day. How do we feel? What are we proud of? And it lasted about, I'm going to say, three days till one of the boarders got came off and I feel like they've tried really hard not to destroy it and every time I've come back into the form class after the lesson um if there was something pulled down the black we're really really sorry um but he did this and he we stopped him and we got him moved away but they felt really really bad um at destroying the display but it's still that it's still standing but but we still sorry, got Badger, but it's is feeling bad good enough because you know what I'll be a bit of a devil's advocate here if a child can have the conscience to feel bad about what they did, like that immediately after doing it, then does that mean they always knew it was wrong? See, that's where I feel like there's a difference. Now, the kids at my school, um, all of them have gone HCP. And there are moments, and it's every day I ha we have to balance out at... Um, were they dysregulated or were they just being naughty? And for all of them, um, you can tell whether they're dysregulated or being naughty. There was one boy, um, he started to peel something off, but he peeled it off and then walked away from it. It was him because I told him off. It was his way of saying, um, I'm peeling this off, but I'm being naughty, but he got the warning for it. However, another boy, it didn't matter what it was, um, he just... Um, could have controlled his emotions and he was completely dysregulated. At this point in time, he didn't realise what he did until the aftermath. And then obviously he felt bad because that's not what he wanted to do. And that's something that we're working on with him. So yeah, there is a difference between um, between when they're dysregulated and when they're just being naughty, which is something that I've, me and some new staff working at the school, we kind of have to get used to. Because in in mainstream... Um, if a child's been like this, you just have to get them out and and you don't excuse, there is no excuse for that behaviour and there is um, all of these sanctions behind 
Um, but I guess in this kind of approach this is why we're kind of working with them, where there's a counsellor on standby and the counsellor gets to speak to them and then we kind of fix the situation. Yeah, and I'm going to come back to that point, Bahja, but I just want to really quickly remind everyone that this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? You can use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order and visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Um and, you know, Badger, to come back to your point, um, you know, you saying that you had to kind of explore or you had to learn coming from mainstream, you had to learn the differences between dysregulated and just quote unquote what you called naughty. Um, like personally, I try to avoid the word naughty, though I know exactly what you're saying. Um, see, the thing is, um, when I was in mainstream, Badger, I never used to send I had my own like internal policy in my head yeah I never used to send kids out of my classroom I used to always think I need to find a solution that will not involve you being sent out of the room because I saw that as as a um exclusion so you know like I always see exclusion as being on like a continuum where the first like form of exclusion is being sent out of your class when everyone else stays in however there were some like non-negotiables for me for example if a pupil say swore at hit you know threatened which by the way thankfully were like really 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 rare incidents but say a pupil did something else to another pupil um then that for me was a non-negotiable like you cannot i would never allow a student to be in the same room as any other student that they've harmed if that makes sense um but for everything else especially when it came to um you know like being off task or you know taking really long to start or um, you know talking out of turn those things I used to always think I need to find a solution for this that does not involve you being sent out because um, you know I understand you know I'm just going to really quickly jump to I, I don't like when things are called you know just all zero tolerance versus restorative I feel like teachers are way more dynamic than that I feel like there's no one who's really just either or if that makes sense like I feel like it's a it's a scale like a sliding scale but um one thing about the um, zero tolerance and the restorative argument that I've always found confusing is um, I know a lot of people say you know restoratives are bad or you know they're not good enough because kids just repeat the same behavior but actually in my experience when I was in mainstream I was a union rep and I've worked in zero tolerance schools before and I felt I felt like it was the same thing like if children you know teachers would constantly make the effort to log detentions or sanction you know behaviors that weren't accepted but then the child would just go to the detention and not learn anything and they'd come back and do it again and you know it would just have knock-on effects for that teacher's well-being that teacher's confidence that teacher you know they derail their lessons there's so much that would happen to that teacher and so I've never really understood why it's just restoratives that, you know, is criticised for that and not also zero tolerance, if that makes sense. So anyway, in my mind, I used to think I need a solution for this because I just always felt like if I um, if I sanction something and, you know, they go to a detention, etc., which, by the way, I did, like I used sanctions all the time. I just used to think, well, what can I do to kind of prevent this now rather than just what? W- wait for it or you know risk it happening again what can I do to actively prevent this or start putting things in place that will make it less likely if that makes sense 
Um, and so one of the things, one of the, how, what I did was I set myself a goal and then I would work backwards. So one of my goals was I will not send any pupil out of my lesson for disruption and I'll work backwards from there. So now obviously disruption is never acceptable. So it wasn't a matter of like lowering my expectations or anything like that. It became a matter of, well, what systems am I going to put in place in my classroom to prevent that from being able to happen? What am I going to do to make sure that children can't do that, if that makes sense? No, I think I completely agree. I was um, similar, but actually I did send kid out, kids out. My key thing was, was that if you can't really fully behave um, in my classroom, you're going to need some time out of my classroom. And it was, there were my only rule, there was a school rule, but my only rule was just respect your, respect me, respect yourselves, um, and respect the classroom and each other. And if you couldn't do that, then there'd be times where you'd be um, sent out. And especially if I um, respect, and obviously the school um, policy, which was a number system. But before we got to the point of getting a final warning, that's when I would have to send the kid out to have that final conversation. And then you could go back in. Um, I do, I do understand about zero tolerance, but I feel like, like I've always said, zero tolerance only works for neurotypical children. I think a zero tolerance uh, behavioral system um, isn't fully inclusive. And the more the longer I've worked in my new school now, the more I 100% don't agree with zero tolerance anymore. You know, that's that's interesting, Bahja. Tell me a little... And by the way, if anyone in the audience... I see there are teachers in the audience, no pressure. If anybody does want to jump in, honestly, you're more than welcome to come and join us um, in the conversation. Um, Bahja, tell me a little bit about why you definitively don't agree with zero tolerance. Well, I feel like with zero tolerance, it's just not allowing children to um, be human. So the likelihood of a child to sit there for an hour lesson in complete silence, listening to you and just working, um, to me, that's not natural. And there'll be times where they'll, they might talk slightly. Or if I'm speak if the main thing is, is respect, and if I'm speaking, I would like you not to speak. And let's say I would tell the muffles, I would say, can you please not speak? And they apologise and they don't do it again. That is completely fine. But in some schools, straight away, that might be a detention or straight away, um, that would be um, another form of sanctioning instead of just owning, um, turn that it's wrong, they're apologising, then we could just move on. Um, some children can't help it. Um, it's um, And some children need a bit more time to understand what they are doing so I think zero tolerance only works with um, neurotypical children and even then that's even hard for them. Thank you Bahja. Els did you want to contribute? Okay whilst we wait for Els I mean Bahja to come back to your point oh Els yeah if you just unmute yourself I think you'll yeah yeah, go ahead go ahead welcome. Sorry, hi, my name is Ellie. I'm a primary school teacher, personal development lead. Uh, mostly working in Kish Stage 2. Amazing. And um, I, I wanted to intervene because kind of all the examples that you're giving, it sounds like secondary school. And when Bajra made the point about zero tolerance, 
for me is quite shocking because what I see is a lot of my children, uh, I have two children that I have taught in year five and end up in Bruce because behavior and it was everything happened in secondary school, whereas that behavior was not displayed in primary school, if you know what I mean. It kind of like deteriorated in secondary school. And some of the things that we really, really emphasize in primary school is being able to have a bad day. It's okay. And we give them we equipment we, we equip them with with tools, you know, mindfulness. And if you have a bad day, you may need five minutes out of the classroom. Come back and regulate yourself when you are regulated. And then from that, from such a nurturing environment, when you go to secondary school to have zero tolerance, you know, secondary school is quite shocking. No, so thank you. No, thank you genuinely so much because, you know, that is a really big area that I feel like is really worth discussing. It, just a few weeks ago, I actually saw statistics on Twitter um, and it was about the difference between suspensions in primary school and um, in secondary school for like the same children and um, from what I saw suspensions in like year six were really low and then there was a massive jump when children started year seven in secondary schools and I feel like what you said there uh, you know is something that has a lot of validity and there's a lot of questions that you know need to be asked as to why is it that children who previously didn't have you know a a poor behavior record in primary school go on to have that in secondary school you know I I completely agree with you I think you know it's really shocking and I do think as well like you that zero tolerance plays a big hand in that another thing that I would say is you know children go from having say you know one classroom teacher um in primary school I mean they might have more but you know very a very little number of classroom teachers and they go from that to having you know sometimes over a dozen teachers where they have to suddenly you know manage the expectations of each teacher because even though everyone in a secondary is following you know school behavior policy that's the same everywhere you know still teachers still have their own individual flares and you know expectations and things like that and a child suddenly has to manage all of those and you know I think there's genuinely a lot of validity to what you're saying thank you did, did you want to say any more yeah, I wanted to say as well, when you were talking about suspensions, I have the restorative conversations, that that's what we do, because a lot of children, they, they, they are punished and they don't even understand what happened. Uh, I can give you an example. Um, I have a student that goes to a secondary school now, and the behavior policy states that, for example, you have negative points in September, and when they all add up to eight, you have a detention. So this is going to have a very good autumn one, very bad autumn one, like transition to uh, secondary school. However, uh, autumn two, she's doing very well. So the other day, something happened in the classroom and she got a negative point. But the previous day, she was rewarded for good behavior. But because the points, the negative points are accumulative or summative, she got a detention the following day of giving her an award of good behavior. So she was like, what is the point of me trying to behave myself if, you know, the behavior policy was a little bit, you know, not really matching the expectation of the children's behavior, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. The, honestly, that's, that sounds really tough. And, you know, I would love to hear what is your perspective as a primary school teacher? What do you think could be done, um, you know, at secondary level? So we, 
we work really, really hard in my school to develop, it's part of the metacognition development of the children and take responsibility of what they do or what they want to achieve. So if we have a child that uh, have a reflection, that's how we call it, we don't call it a suspension, it would be a matter of have that dialogue. How do you feel? What, how were you feeling at that moment when you did that? And this makes them have that understanding that that behavior is not acceptable, but that communication, that conversation take place because I believe that behind a behavior, there is something else. I, I work in a quite a private area and a lot of the children witness domestic violence or they are new to the country, refugees. So they, they're coming to school with a lot of, you know, budget already, you know. So it's about having those conversations and reinforce that it's okay, you know, but you can do something about it. Yeah, I see what you're saying, Ellie. And so you essentially support um, restoratives. I just want to pick up on a point you said there. So are you saying that your school doesn't use the phrase suspensions and you instead call them reflections? Yeah, we have reflections. We don't have suspensions. And if a, we, we, if a child misbehaves, let's say like that, uh, or is unregulated, we might have a verbal, a verbal warning. And then we give them, if it happens again, they have five minutes to reflect. And then if it's something really severe, um, we, then we have um, one hour at lunchtime, instead of going outside in the playground, they will be with an SALT member or myself, and we will have, uh, we will have lunch together, and then we will have that conversation, that reflection, so where they will explain what happened from the point of view, because sometimes we assume things, and we as an adult, we have to show them that we can make mistakes, like they pick a thing, oh, I know you You were talking, that it might not be that child, it might be the child that was next to that child. So given that opportunity to have that conversation and then very importantly, given that emotional language, how are you feeling right now? Because you would be shocked how many children are not given the opportunity to share how they feel. And then what will you do next time? And um, have you found like, so... How, how is it measured, the impact that this has? You know, how are you guys able to show that, you know, these conversations actually have a positive impact on people's and it actually results in improved, you know, whole school behaviour? Is there somebody that's checking and reporting back to everybody? So we, also, we actually record all these incidents and then we classify by like vulnerable groups if our, um, which group, it's more reincident to go into reflection. Is it boys? Is it girls? Is it our people uh, uh, premium children? So we have a quite high monitor. And some of the children as well, if we think that it's not working, we have noticed that our children, with um, uh, our neurodiverse children, so they will go into other type of intervention and the behavior management will be managed in a different way. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what has the support amongst, what has the view of staff been in terms of that? Okay. So another thing I want to ask you actually, um, what about, mm -hmm. uh, so serious breaches of the school behavior policy, if um, suspensions are called reflections, what happens then? Mm -hmm. Just, you know, to be a bit, just curious to know, like if, if say a student was in serious breach of the school behavior policy, what would the response then be? 
the response will be well as as uh, I've been in this school four years now, and I believe that I witnessed twice internal exclusions where the child will be outside the classroom working with a SLT member for a day. This is the most severe, if I can call it punishment, that I have witnessed. Okay, so the most you've witnessed is an internal exclusion. And can mm-hmm. I ask out of curiosity, what was the behavior that resulted in an exter- internal exclusion for? Uh, physical aggression. Towards people, staff? Towards the uh, people. Okay, and what then happens for the people that is the victim of the physical aggression? Uh, are they are they spoken to as well like what happened yeah yeah because uh, there's gonna be a again a restorative what happened was both of them are friends and they were messing around and one thing it was not kind of an intentional aggression but because it ended into a physical aggression and one of the children you know being hurt we have to use you know internal exclusion and yeah it was a restorative conversation and it was a child from the same classroom that they always played together, but one thing went to another and it got a little bit out of hand. And it hasn't happened again. Thank you, Ellie. You know, that's really interesting to know. I know that um, Bah just said that, you know, her moving into alternative provision has made her completely against zero tolerance. I hear also what you're saying. And I think, you know, as I was saying earlier, there's a lot to be said about the um shift in or the massive rise in suspensions between year six and year seven um pupils have to go from managing the expectations of one classroom teacher in year six to a dozen or so uh, when they get to second i think that that we have a massive problem in terms of uh teachers expectations sometimes some behaviors are displayed because the children feel that that's what is expected from me sometimes there are coping behaviors uh, I witnessed that, that a child is behaving, they have several behavior problems or unregulated children or neurodiverse children. And some children, quite, they can start imitating the behavior. So I can see that some of my, I have, um, last year, I have a student, it was a lack of student, local authority yeah. uh, child, and he has um, quite severe trauma and he was display quite you know challenging behaviors and this year last year when he was with me he kind of regulated a lot but last year he couldn't be in class it was very very difficult for him and i think that that goes to the expectation i did expect him to learn i did expect him to be in the classroom you know but all this at the same time i did expect him to understand from me that sometimes it's not possible and I understood that because if he was dysregulated there is no way that he could be sitting down with the other children and learning and then this is what you're going to do we created a whole chilling uh, section that he designed what would you like to have I would like to have football books and music and he had a little tent where he can hide every time that he felt overwhelmed or dysregulated and that's what we did we created that area for him so if he wasn't, he will, he stopped running up and down in the school. What he will do now, I feel dysregulated. I can't cope in the classroom. I'm going in my pod. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. Just stay there for me. I will come back to you. Um, 
want okay. to pass on to uh, Mutmin Humayun, who is a head teacher in Luton. Mutmin, over to you. Hi, Yasmin. How Hi, are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've just caught the. I'm, I'm having a few connection problems, but listening in. Um, so I may have pressed the button by accident. Oh, that's totally fine. Don't worry. Oh, you mean you didn't mean to be a speaker? <laughs> no, I didn't mean to be a speaker, but I'm listening in, and I will jump in. Uh, but I'm listening um, to everything that's being said. But before I open my mouth, I th I'm trying to listen more than speak that's at the moment. That's <laughs> totally fine, and you're more than welcome to jump in at any point if you'd like to. Um, so. Um, Ellie, I can see that there is a response, not to you necessarily, um, but, you know, this, these discussions that we're having about restoratives um, from Muhsin Ismail, who has essentially replied just one word. He said chaos. Um, what would you say to the uh, staff that consider, and that's open to you as well, Bahja, um, Ellie, even uh, Mutman, if you want to contribute, what would you guys say to the people who are on the kind of other end and like I said earlier I don't believe that anyone should really be either just you know restorative or zero tolerance like I feel like most teachers are on a sliding scale you know and they're kind of a bit of a lot of things so what would you say to somebody who sees restorative as chaos essentially I think it's a bit um calling restorative chaos is expecting children to just be um grown adults with the fully formed um emotional intelligence with um no trauma behind or anything like that because even as adults um we struggle with i mean put me in a hour training as as a teacher and i'm struggling and i don't want to be in there however um, I have got the experience and the time that it took for me to manage um, my emotions and how I'm feeling in certain social settings. And we're supposed to be um, educating these children into that. And especially in primary school, when they are even young in the secondary school, um, we're, we're expecting them to just sit like good little robots and do everything that um, we want them to do and and I remember you saying that the jump of exclusions from year six to year seven it just increases ridiculously and it's because us as secondary school teachers um, we expect these um, year six students into year seven um, to be already fully formed and how many times do you hear people say like you're not in primary school anymore this is secondary school and but actually they're still developing and all of these children are develop developing a different parts and restorative is the whole point of you've done something wrong this is why it is wrong and this is the consequences of it and to label restorative as chaos I think it's just it's just a bit silly so um, I'll tell you guys another story from um, my time in mainstream one of the things that um, I did to manage behavior 
that I just kind of came up with as my own idea. And it's something similar, like what reminded me actually is what Ellie said earlier um, about, you know, to kind of talking to people, uh, pupils and, you know, trying to help them develop that emotive language to describe how they feel and, you know, basically normalize the fact that anyone can make mistakes, including adults. So when I was in mainstream, like I said earlier, every class I taught was, you know, considered a challenging class. I remember as well, I had a lot of pupils that had quite high um, truancy stats and um you know when i got my new timetable in september every year i just kind of look at the data obviously you know the data is just i feel like it's just a snapshot when you look at every year every teacher would know this you know you get your sims print out go for schools whatever in september you've got all these faces they're unknown to you you know you can see who's got an ehcp or who is um, you know SEND or you know um you can look at whatever data you want, but actually you won't really know what you're looking at until you've seen them at least a few times. You know, every teacher knows when you first get a class in September compared to at the end of the year in July, it's a completely different experience. At the start of the year, they were just names, you know, faces, they were strangers. But by the end of the year, a lot of the time they're, you know, children that you're really, um, you know, connected to and, you know, you've been on a journey with them and you know them so much better. Anyway, in September, I used to teach these kids and, and, you know, I'd wait a few lessons. You just try your luck in it with a seating plan, you, you know, just kind of hope everything will work out for you. But I remember I was on, because I didn't have any um, teaching and learning responsibilities, I was on 24 out of 30 periods a week. I was teaching full classes of 30. I had no real time to, you know, I couldn't run around the school and, you know, kind of force kids into my classroom. If somebody was kind of truanting, um, there was nothing I could do about it because I have 29 other kids in front of me. So I thought, you know what, I need to kind of figure out a way where I'm going to, you know, going back to what I was telling you guys earlier about how I'm against sending pupils out of a class. You know, I feel like it's the start of an exclusion continuum. And I always knew it was something I was against. So I had that, you know, plan in my head where I would never send a kid out of a lesson. And I would always work backwards from that and think, what could I do to ensure that you're able to stay in this lesson kind of safely and successfully etc um so anyway what i then did was when i noticed that kids would um essentially bunk lessons i kind of would get that child i'd get them at another time either break lunch after school um whatever and i would basically say to them look having a bad day it's a bit like what ellie said earlier but i would say to them look having a bad day is not a bad thing being angry upset any of these emotions that you might have they're not bad things okay they're not things I'm going to be judging you for there's nothing wrong with whatever emotion you feel you know I'm more than happy for you to feel any emotion that you're feeling but what I would like you to do is to show up to my lessons and have a quiet word with me at the door it was a whole school policy anyway to greet children upon entry so I would always be at my door I would never be at my desk like I would actually stand there waiting for them to come in so I would say look there's nothing wrong with bad you know there's nothing wrong with um feeling bad or angry or upset but there is actually something wrong with you truanting you know or going to hide in the toilet or you know kind of taking your emotions out on another or you know demonstrating any kind of unsafe behavior so you know let's tackle that and I would tell them look come and speak to me so when I'm stood at my door what I suddenly saw arising was children who, like, you could already tell. I could see them coming down from the corridor, you know, from a mile away. I could already tell who was about to show up a bit off kilter. And, you know, because I always had a do now on the board and, you know, the kind of entry into lesson was silent, you know, kind of going back to this whole zero tolerance restorative thing. I feel like I was a real mix of the two because I expected kids to come in silently. And, you know, I had a book monitor and, you know, they would hand out the books in silence and people would settle down in silence and you were expecting 
expected to start that do now um so you know that would buy me a, a few minutes essentially to kind of help gather a child who might have shown up really upset so I suddenly had a massive like rise in children who'd show up even in tears or you know really angry you know I even had a kid punch my door once as he walked up to the door he just punched it and you know he still had a really successful double lesson where I did not have to send him out he didn't earn any detentions he did his work but anyway I used to keep a desk right at the front of my classroom so it was at the end of my desk but it was also right under the board and um, I just you know I didn't really have a name for the desk. I used to change the name of it depending on the class that I had. So like, for example, sometimes I had children that were, um, you know, quite disruptive. You know, they didn't really have anything going on. They were just misbehaving. And so here and there as a joke, well, not as a joke, but like I would call it the naughty corner, which is, you know, a classic teacher name, you know. And um, sometimes I'd keep a child there for up to a half term up until, you know, their behaviours had really improved and, you know, I'd done a lot of work with them. And then, you know, as a joke, we'd even kind of hold like a like a ceremony for them, just really briefly, 30 seconds, you know, be like, oh, you know, congrats to so-and-so who's now graduating from Naughty Corner and will now be reintegrated back into the rest of the class. And they would basically take, you know, three steps back into, you know, and go, I'd seat them somewhere with someone in the class. And, you know, the class always found it quite funny. But generally, I used to use that seat for any of the kids that were going through something. So, you know, over the years, I could think of um, like a child whose parent died of COVID. Um, it's also a lot more trivial things. And I hate to call it trivial because I feel like at that age, nothing is trivial. But like, for example, a child who maybe fell out with another child, especially if that child was in the class as well. You know, just little things. Um, kids who had just returned from an exclusion after like a fight. Um, just all sorts of things. A, a child that had been robbed for like a really nice coat that they had and was really upset. Any child that showed up a bit upset to my lesson, but had at least not been bunking, I would tend to guide to that seat. And what I liked about that table was, A, it was right under the board. So you could kind of, you know, still do your work. You know, that there was, I still always had the expectation when you're in the class, you know, you, you are still part of the class. Um, but also it gave them a break because everyone else was behind them they were sat you know with their back to the rest of the class which meant that no one could really see their face especially if they were quite you know emotional like visibly emotional and upset and crying like and also they were right next to me um so you know if they needed to speak to me they were able to and if I wanted to go and check on them I could do so quite easily without anyone else in the class overhearing and you know I found that a lot of the time children would show up upset you know anything could have happened but they will come sit at that desk and they will just kind of get on with their work and you know they'd really appreciate it and what I particularly loved about it was the rest of the class always knew if somebody was sat there then it meant that something was probably wrong and you know they were kind of getting a little bit of extra help and I also loved that everyone in my class knew that they also had the option to sit there if they ever needed to, if that makes sense. Like I never used to really keep the same child there all the time. Um, and I loved it because it created a culture of kindness and respect. You know, there were times where my child, my child, what? why did I just say that? My class would be extra um, quiet or extra well behaved, you know, because they knew that somebody was feeling a bit sensitive if that makes sense and um I just I remember really loving that idea in mainstream it really worked for me I completely eliminated truancy I never had a child after like September after we got to know each other a bit or after people saw somebody sit there you know a few times and stuff I never had to deal with truancy again all the children used to like to turn up to lessons and I do feel like a big part of it was because any child that was already upset 
knew that they could show up to lesson and that it wouldn't escalate further. It wouldn't really descend into any kind of further chaos. They could show up and a lot of the time forget about what had happened for, you know, whether it was a single or a double lesson. And, you know, they could kind of safely deal with it in whatever way they needed to afterwards. You know, that's why they had pastoral teams and all of those people. But it was something that really worked for me. And, um, you know, it's something I often encourage teachers to use. Um, you know, just find the t- And I know it's really hard when you're teaching like a really full class. Um, but, the, you know, that's why I always say if you kind of know what your end goals are or what your non-negotiables are is it I feel like it makes it easier to work backwards but yeah I just spoke for a long time there Jasmine I totally uh, follow and you know uh, support everything that you just said and I'm going to be very brief I think that what you're describing is what I would say is a transformational teacher so I think that all these narratives start with us as educators and have that reflective practice that when you walk into the school or into your classroom, what type of teacher you are, uh, are you a functional teacher delivering the curriculum or you really want to make a difference in these children's lives? And that follows the question that you posed before about um, the teachers that I feel a little bit no. Uh, will describe restorative as a as a chaos, and I would say they have to be patient, and they have to be confident in the skills to deliver these conversations. And I can guarantee you a hundred percent that it does make a difference when you you know spend that time with the children and have those conversations and acknowledge them, because the worst that can happen is a child that feels that doesn't belong or feels rejected typical, you know, narrative of my teacher doesn't like me. So what's the point? And you don't want any other children to reach to that point because then it will display that behavior, disengagement in the classroom, lessons, and ultimately it will have an effect in uh, attainment. Honestly, Ellie, thank you so much. Um, And I love that you've described it as, you know, being a transformational teacher. I totally agree with you that, you know, teachers need to be reflective and think about all these things. I also want to remind everybody that this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out the latest releases? Use code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. And visit johncatbookshop.com to explore the full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Over to you, Bahja. No, I was just saying that um, you've taken a a nicer approach um, to children truanting. Uh, my approach was if um, you truant when you were late to my lesson, I, I used to make them feel like it was a personal attack um, with a sort of restorative point was I don't care what kind of mood you are in I don't care what's happened beforehand I just need you to be in my lesson and get on with and get on with the work so that we don't get into further trouble or if they've done something silly and got themselves into isolation I would take it as oh you wanted to avoid science and I need you to be in my science class and I think um, I want to hear a bit more from uh, the perspective of a principal um, to hear about the restorative versus the zero tolerance approach. 
What do you think, Yasmin? It's a very controversial question, but you know what? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I've got Mr. Diamond, my VP, who's also um, listening in. He's actually leads on, on behaviour, so it might be, it'll be interesting to know what, what he thinks. The first question I'm going to ask is, what is the evidence um, for restorative approaches having the impact we want them to have because um i've probably flitted from from both camps and what you know leading a large secondary school nearly 1500 students i think i i look at what's the best best fit what's going to work for my school community what's going to be most effective for my staff my students the families we serve um and there's a level of pragmatism to what we do as well as you know what the best what might work somewhere else may not necessarily be the best thing that works in any single given school so I think a lot of these discussions are context dependent I'd say right now the restorative approach in a really large setting I think about the amount of time that might take um, and I'm not I'm not in any way saying that um, you know individual differences don't matter that you know, students um, are all kind of individuals uh, with their own kind of individuality. But I think in a, in, a, in a large setting, schools really work well with clear structure, clear boundaries. Um, and I'm, I'm not overly convinced. I think there is, a, there is a time and a place for a restorative approach. But leading a large secondary school is, is the restorative approach a better solution than having a, a more structured, rigid behaviour system that's understood by all. Uh, you know, I'm I'm probably more inclined to to go with the the structured, warm, strict approach. Thank you, Mutman. I see honestly. I genuinely see what you're saying. Um, and you know, I think you might not have been in the room when I was saying it but you know I was talking about how I feel like most teachers are kind of on a sliding scale and you know it's really hard to just be in you know one camp or the other like I, I feel like it's really tough and I agree with you I would say that I'm warm strict I feel like um, you know I do use restoratives but I don't use restoratives as a standalone um, I put a lot of effort into teaching children, you know, a bit like Ellie, you know, emotive language, how to express themselves, how to normalize negative emotions um, and how to help them, you know, self-regulate and things like that. But actually also I found in teaching that I've always kind of needed those policies and procedures in place to be able to sanction a child when, you know, they don't get things right. And so I've always been, I've always used both if that makes sense. So I do see what you're saying. Yeah. And, um, you know, to go back to your point about what the evidence is, I think, you know, I do love restoratives. I, I And I want more teachers to use them. And I actually even now run CPDs where I kind of help teachers to understand restoratives better. However, the big criticism that I understand entirely is that it's, I feel a lot less objective it's it's quite hard to quantify because so much of it is conversations um and so you know whenever people tell me about restoratives I do ask them what impact has it had on your you know whole school behavior like what have you seen a reduction in since you've put you know x in place and um I I, I just think I remember from my time in mainstream uh you know there was a policy in place where um 
if you know you reported a child or, or, or something you sanctioned a child their head of house or their pastoral manager or somebody in middle leadership would do a restorative conversation and I remember because I was a union rep and also just friends general with a lot of the teachers in the school I remember how many people hated it because it it sometimes felt like a lottery it it felt like it depended on who did it for you um because you know some staff were perceived as better at you know mediating or doing restoratives than others and so because of that a lot of teachers disliked it and I remember you know feeling like well they can't be criticized you know if they don't feel adequately supported in a behavior issue that arose in a classroom um then, you know, like I used to give a lot of thought to how can you standardize restoratives? And, um, you know, I, I do understand when a lot of people criticize restoratives and say, well, you know, it's not the same everywhere and it's not the same. It's not done in the same way by everyone. But I also think, you know, it's because a lot of the time the training for restoratives isn't good enough. There are people who run restoratives who've never really been given training in it. So I feel like for me, because of that, I wouldn't criticize restoratives. I just criticize the fact that there isn't a lot of the time an emphasis or enough training given the staff. But I'll pass over to you, Badger. I've been talking a lot. No, I completely agree. And I think um, lack of training and also understanding of where bad behavior comes from is what's um, missing. And I think recently, what both my current school and my old school have done, which I think is very um is very good is the trauma training um in teaching um trauma teaching which is which opens up your eyes a lot more to what's behind behavior but i see that miss um h teachers is on as a speaker uh please um let us know your thoughts on anything that we spoke about hi thank you so much for for letting me just uh jump on really quickly um i kind of i've absolutely loved the show by the way so interesting and obviously as someone that for anyone that doesn't know i work in ap so um i will massively bang the drum for it and the, the pros of ap but um i think it's been a really interesting conversation and i just kind of wanted to jump on really about two things one was kind of restorative and then a little bit about trauma so for me i think like you said yourself, um, our restorative practices are, are although there, there needs to be a standardisation, they are bespoke to the child and to the situation, the context of what's happened. But for perhaps for colleagues that don't work in AP, one of the reasons that I found from my own experience of why restorative practice works so well is because for quite a high percentage of our pupils accessing AP they have quite complex needs now whether that is a learning need or whether that is a need around SEMH attachment and trauma um, and what restorative practice allows our young people to do is to be guided through reflection because for lots of the children that have got quite significant ACEs and attachment and traumas that opportunity to be guided through what happened, how did you feel, how do you think it made the other person feel, is really important because depending on what those ACEs and that trauma has been, it may be that they've not had that foundational knowledge as, as children developing for whatever reason, maybe because they're, they're claw, maybe because they 
for whatever reason ha haven't had that family network and support now obviously that's not every pupil in a school and it's not every pupil that's got attachment and trauma or aces but restorative practice allows us to help guide those children and to allow them to start reflecting because some of the challenging behaviors that they face and when they become dysregulated they're not aware of of their behavior they're not aware of the consequences of, of, of and the impact on others so restorative practice allows us to guide them and start that process of reflection so although as you know the colleague said before about um you know what's the evidence i, I think data wise i couldn't give you that but i can certainly say from my own experience that i have watched children um develop those skills over time if it's consistently done and so i think it's really valuable and i sort of think the other thing is is that you know for our our, our children who have had really complex attachment and trauma and aces um you know that those behaviors can be a communication because of the quite significant things that they've been through and and whether that's as simple as not being able to manage in mainstream and 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 the trauma of remaining in mainstream until they've been able to access a, an ap is you know it's not for me to say what those complex traumas are but the behavior that's demonstrated is often that communication and while it's really difficult for mainstream colleagues and it's really difficult for the kids that experience that that's what the power of ap is is allowing those children to have restoratives and pastoral care that's really bespoke to them which is difficult in a mainstream but isn't in an ap because we have the luxury of smaller classes of you know additional staff so you know restoratives might not work in a main street a large-scale mainstream but in my experience they definitely do in ap sorry to go on sorry to go on around oh no that wasn't a run at all thank you so much miss h and you know it is a nice reminder because i'm in ap at the moment so is betja you know like it's it's nice to hear and i completely see what you're saying and i agree i think in ap i have felt like you know the much smaller class sizes makes a huge difference and I think as well what you just said there about how it might not work in mainstream all the time compared to AP is kind of similar to I don't want to speak for you um Mr Hermione I also by the way um just a quick side note I I alternate between calling him Mutmin and Mr Hermione because he actually taught me when I was at school Mr Hermione was my teacher so can't help it keep defaulting to that but um I think you know that's what he was touching on as a head teacher um I think he said he has a school with you know about 1500 pupils and you know you have to think about what's best for everyone in that environment and you know I think that's a really really fair um comment to make but thank you also miss h because you know that is it's honestly touching to hear that and you know aces and trauma it, it's a really big topic i think it's something and i know you know people in teaching say that you know they the um they reinvent the wheel and things like that and you know the same phrases come up again and again in different ways but you know just hearing that i i know so many more people now are talking about aces and trauma and you know i love that I personally think it's really, really needed and it's something always worth remembering. So thank you for your contribution. And Bahja, I'll pass over to you again. And I think um, I would just want to just clarify, ACEs are adverse childhood experiences um, and these are basically potential traumatic events that occur in childhood that affect um, the, develop the cognitive development of um, young people. And I think it's very 
I also do feel like the restorative approach technically should work in mainstream because the whole idea of mainstream is we're supposed to be all-inclusive. Um, we are supposed to be catering to all students, um, whether they have an SEN need, uh, EAL need, or any kind of needs. And I think um, the reason why things are not implemented as such is because of the high expectations on things that are not really that important. Well, they are sort of important, but the bureaucratic processes of what's supposed to be happening in schools. I know that there were certain paperwork as a science teacher that I was asked to fill in um, that actually it was just a tick box for in case Ofsted came along and it didn't really do much for my lesson. And, and if instead of spending that time um, on all of these things that to me are just tick boxes exercise that are not needed, we can actually work on training teachers into working more towards the restorative approach. But I just want to be a little bit of a dev devil's advocate there, Bahja. Um, I know you said that restoratives can work in mainstream or they should technically work. What would you say to, you know, the people that argue, well, when you've got over a thousand pupils um, and, you know, you've got to always take into consideration the safety of everyone in the school environment, um, you know, what would you say to the people that, or to the staff that feel like restoratives don't offer the same kind of order and clarity that say and I don't want to call it zero tolerance because that is not it's not either just restorative or zero tolerance but you know to uh, other approaches that aren't restorative. So I think so you were telling us about um, the story on how you tackled children truanting your class because you decided that you were gonna put it upon yourself to make them feel welcome in your class or have some kind of um, reason to come into class and to not truant and it wasn't that they were going to get told off even more even if they had a bad day. Um, other members of staff might make there is a consequence if you don't do um, specific something that you're supposed to do um, in class. What I'm going to do actually is I'm going to pause and I'm just going to go back to um, Ellie because she has a hand up. Um, if, do you want to speak, Kels? I think maybe could. Oh, go Hi, sorry, uh, I couldn't find the mic. I couldn't unmute myself. Um, yes, um, I just want to um, clarify a little bit. I think that restorative uh, approach is not a reactive approach. It's not something that you must do just you know, as a reaction of a dysregulated child or, or bad behavior in the classroom. I think that that has to be woven with the whole culture of the school. Uh, so if you've been, you, you were talking about trauma-informed training to all the staff, if everybody had the same approach as some of the strategies that you use in your classroom, that would be part of that, that restorative, restorative uh, approach. So all the children are welcome. Everybody is included. Um, and at the end of the day, as teachers, we have a, a, a duty of care for every child. So we can't wait to use these approaches only when something negative happens in the classroom or in the school. I think that is uh, on a daily basis. That should be woven with every subject within the curriculum, within the behavior policy. So when we're talking about zero tolerance, 
I feel that that removes accountability from the teachers because we have a zero tolerance uh, policy. You know, this is what happens to you. Whereas restorative leave it open and more inclusive in terms of that, well, you make a mistake, I can make a mistake. They have that conversation. Some children will not need to follow up like a long conversation. Other children will take more pastoral care. But I think that it's approach. It's an approach that it has to be reflected in the whole context and the whole culture of the school. And as you say as well, needs training and the teachers need to feel equipped and, and you know, enabled to deliver it. Thank you. Yeah. Now I'm just going to say that um, what Ellie was saying is about maintaining consistency across the whole school. If everybody follows other policies and everybody follows the rules, a child going into science um, would feel, would know what to expect if they went into English and how um, they should be behaving. And I think if I go back to my hat as a head of year, the one thing I was struggling in when I was supporting staff in terms of um, dealing with bad behaviour, my issue was um, there was a lack of consistency in their class, um, follow-up on their part, um, and actually just bothering with that restorative because it was just straight, it was easier to just go straight to the pastoral side and be like, well, this child's misbehaving, you need to do something about it. Um, when it came down to have you called home, um, have you actually um, changed the seat plan, do the little parts that they could have done in order to own behaviour in there. And I think, or even come down to the detention, because my old school, um, we had centralised detention where teachers had to come down and have the restorative approach and spoke about what happened. And I would say the only the very few teachers who would do that were usually um, the PGC students or the um, ECTs, um, teachers who were who had been at the school a bit longer um, would hand out the detention but wouldn't come back and do the restorative discussion in detention and therefore that child will go back to their lesson because they've completed the punishment and the same thing would happen. So I, I, I still say... Yes, there might be a thousand children. Yes, you might have a, ch a child of 30. Uh, but ultimately, unless the behaviour is um, major to a point where it has to be a a suspension or an exclusion, if it is a, a um, let's say, low-level disruptions behaviour, that comes down to have you done all the bits that you're supposed to do as a teacher? And if it's still not working, there are things within the pastoral that we can take over. Um, yeah, but this I see what you're saying, Bahaja, but this is what I mean. I feel like teachers are their kind of confidence and well-being and energy is kind of eroded by the same behavior again and again and again and again. Like a lot of teachers have, you know, called home. They have put a child in detention. They have kind of done all of those things. And I think that um, this is, you know, and to kind of link what you just said to what Ellie said as well. I agree that, you know, restoratives shouldn't be reactive. I used to use in mainstream, I always used restoratives as a preventative measure. Like I used to preempt what children would do. If I knew that children were truant a lot, I would have a conversation with them before they did it in my lesson about, um, you know, 
their emotions and all the things I was saying earlier and stuff like that you know like I found it it really helped me curb those behaviors but you know Bahja, I feel like when you're explaining there for me I see that as you know there's a lot more room for um training to be given to all staff really um on you know what preventative measures you can put in place I feel like there's so much behavior management on like re- react reactive things and you know whole school policies and I just feel like it's there's a huge market might not be the right word but you know for kind of training all teachers on how to use restorative practice as a preventative measure within just classroom behavior um you know I I just feel like there's a lot of room for that personally yeah and I think um and I get what you say about there's a lot that teachers already do and that's where um the next level is the pastoral and then the next level is the SLT section because what I notice is that um, there's no perfect school but where certain places work is that the teachers have done everything the middle leaders have now had to deal with it and then it's been passed on where things have been followed through um, the behavior improves but there's always a gap somewhere there's either there is nothing happening within the middle leadership section whether it's the head of department or the head of year um, and the behavior just gets worse or there's nothing happening above that where it's kind of like the kids have gone through this different scales and then have to come back down and there's no actual real consequences happening Um, so I think it's where everybody's supposed to be working uh, cohesively and I think just the system at the minute is not systeming (laughs) I see what you're saying there I see what you're saying and um, since it's hit 9.30, I think this is probably a really good p- uh, place to stop this conversation. I know there's so much to be said. I would really, really love to do a part two. Um, I don't know if you guys can hear that, but there's currently about two police helicopters flying over my house. You know, I live in East London and there's clearly something going on outside. But um, it was really, really nice to have all the people that contributed. Um, thank you to um, Ellie and to uh, Miss H and to you Bahja and to Mutmin and um, a quick shout out to Mr Diamond it would have been nice to hear um, your thoughts on behaviour in your school too Um, but you know it will be really nice to do a part two I think there's so much to be said about behaviour and um, yeah my well our next show will be in January on the second Friday on the 12th and it will be lovely to have you all return and thank you so much to everyone that's tuned in on a Saturday night and to everyone that's contributed and I hope you all enjoy the rest of your half term have a good evening bye everyone thank you so much thank you Ellie bye-bye You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.